Blake Gopnik, one of North America's leading arts writers, has served as art and design critic at Newsweek and as chief art critic at the Washington Post and Canada's Globe and Mail. He has a PhD in art history from Oxford University and is a regular contributor to the New York Times. He's just written a beautiful big biography of Andy Warhol, published by Echo. Welcome to the Bibliophile. I'd like to talk a bit first about writing a biography and Robert Caro, who in his short book called Working, I don't know if you had a chance to read it, did you? No, I've been too busy with my own book. <laughs> that came out too recently for me to have time to read it. Okay. But I have read the reviews. In that book, he says that he wanted to write about and understand political power. And in order to write about the acquiring and using of it the way he wanted to, he says that he had to write about not only the powerful, but the powerless as well, to learn about their lives thoroughly enough so that he could make the reader feel for them. So I wonder, what big topic or subject did you want to understand, if any, writing about Andy Warhol, or was it just Warhol himself? Oh, no big topic, just the entire nature of art and innovation. But other than that, no, no real goals at all. Um, uh, I mean, you know, Warhol is pretty evidently one of the giants of the 20th century and probably one of the giants of all European art. And yet he's one of the most confusing, complicated, uh, contentious of all artists so that obviously was bait you know I'm, i was trained as an art historian and art critic so an artist that complex was obviously going to attract me so was there anything that you wanted to illuminate about the time that he was active you know i was more interested in a strange fact about andy warhol and i'm not the first one to ever point this out but the fact that he was uh, obviously a maker of wonderful art objects, but it's pretty safe to say that he was also a maker of himself as an art object. So it seemed to me that biography was uniquely suited to his particular issues, uh, that biography was particularly suited to understanding his art, given that, among other things, he was his own work of art. I mean, you immediately think of Byron when that comes up. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you noticed, but I actually compare him and Byron. The crucial difference between Warhol and the other figures about whom the same things kind of can be said, I mean, lots and lots of creative types have been eccentric and mm -hmm. have had strong personas. But the difference is that with most of them, the persona and the art were relatively different. Byron, of course, is an incredibly sophisticated and controlled poet, and yet his reputation is as a swashbuckling romantic. Right? Mm -hmm. And there are lots of cases like that. Salvador Dali is a fussy, fussy painter of small detail, and yet his persona is this larger-than-life persona. But with Warhol, there's an unusual intersection between the persona and the art, and a real inability to separate them out. You'd want to study Byron's uh, verse, whether you knew anything about him or not. You don't need to know about Byron to understand the verse. Right. But with Warhol, they're really indissoluble. They are so similar mm. as creations that you really have to study both the, the life and the art, or at least that's a convenient excuse I have for writing my biography. 
Well, that really comes into play uh, after he is shot. Well, I argue that it comes into play pretty much at the moment that he discovers Pop, or pretty soon thereafter. You know, he makes pictures of goofy things from everyday life, from popular culture, and very soon starts portraying himself as a kind of gum-chewing teeny bopper, even though he was well on in his 30s and, you know, was actually a well-trained sophisticate. So that happens in 62 or so already. Yeah. But, you know, because he was gay in Pittsburgh, where you really were not supposed to be gay... There was an element of having to figure out who you were and figure out how to present yourself from very early on in his life. I think it's something that a lot of gay people have to deal with. Who am I? How do I present myself to the world? So I think from very early on, Warhol had to figure out how to present himself in the world. So he goes through different personas over the course of his mm, life yeah. and sort of fixes on the famous persona, the pop art persona, the sunglasses and leather jacket. The leather jacket really only comes into play in 1964. So that's when the persona is fully invented, I'd say. You talk about Pittsburgh and the the manner in which the police deal with, with homosexuals, and it's really quite shocking, uh, isn't it? Yeah, that came as a surprise to me, and I think will come as a surprise to most readers of the book, that uh, just when Warhol was probably coming out, fully coming out as a, as a gay man, uh, they form a special squad the, in, in Pittsburgh, police squad called the moral squad but it didn't police all morals it was really only aimed at eradicating what they called the curse of homosexuality in pittsburgh and they were absolutely brutally beat beat uh, gay men up they shot them they mostly extorted money from them i mean it was an absolutely brutal situation and that's just at the moment that warhol isn't only coming out to himself as gay but was actually starting to assert himself with a gay persona. He was deliberately assuming a, a quite effeminate personality persona at that moment as part of what it was to be an artist and to be gay. He called himself Andre, A-N-D-R-E, with an accent, and really uh, created himself as a kind of effete bohemian at just that moment. When walking down the streets of Pittsburgh as an effete bohemian was probably about the most courageous thing you could do. Was... And it's important, I think, for understanding Warhol at any point understand how courageous he was he presented himself as this kind of oh i don't know shy retiring uh, wimpy character but he actually was ferociously courageous in almost everything he did at every moment in his life yeah you see that goes diametrically opposed to my interpretation of him i suppose i'm like robert hughes the, the great time magazine art critic who basically thought he was a moron Largely because that's exactly what Warhol wanted people to think, right? Yes and no. Uh, he didn't really want them to think that. He didn't want smart people to think that. He was happy to have silly people think that. And unfortunately, in this one case, perhaps only, Bob Hughes ends up on the silly people's side. <laughs> right. um, Warhol cared deeply about what really smart art critics thought about and he was surrounded by three or four of the smartest art critics of his era who are as smart as any art critic has ever been. And they realized that something incredibly complex was going on. And one of the points I try to make in my book over and over again is it wasn't uh, only Warhol who was exploring this territory. He was actually part of a really um, radical avant-garde at just that moment. So radical that most average people today won't think of them as part of the 60s art scene. But there were conceptual artists doing things very similar to what he was doing 
refusing to accept a gap between art and life, wanting art and life to collapse into each other. So I talk about one artist called Alberto Greco, an Argentine artist, who would declare people works of art by him by simply putting a circle of chalk around them on the pavement. Mm -hmm. Or uh, he, would he would point at someone and say, that's my work of art. But most, his most extreme gesture came necessarily at the very end of his life when he um, took an overdose of barbiturates deliberately um, as his final work of art and declared his suicide. Uh, his masterpiece, writing the words, the end on his hand and, and dying. That yeah. was the kind of extreme radical self-creation that Warhol was was participating in at that moment. So it's not just that he did something wacky. Yeah. He did something wacky that was part of what people were doing as art at that moment. Well, what you say is that he was pioneering one of the signature culture forms of the 1960s, the put-on. Yeah, isn't that funny? That's a category that has sort of disappeared from view. But when you go back to the 60s literature, you realize that that concept of the put-on is everywhere. In fact, there was a book published called yeah. The Put-On. Yeah. And you know, there were several different put-on artists. The Beatles were put-on artists, right? Every time they were interviewed, they gave ridiculous answers to, their, you know, to the questions that were asked them. Uh, Bob Dylan was a famous put-on artist as well. He lied mm. like crazy every time he was interviewed. And Warhol was one of those and may actually have contributed to Dylan's putting on, I think, yeah. he comes first. But he's certainly one of the first of these uh, artists who just refuses to allow anyone to take them seriously. But in fact, that act of refusing to be taken seriously was actually a kind of fairly serious part of his, of his persona, of his creativity. Well, one thing, as I say, that, uh, that I resent, resented, I guess is exactly this. I mean, he's trying to con me. You know, sure, I understand he's making a conceptual point, but I just it just goes against everything that we want in another person. Except that when they're on stage, right? You're happy to see Richard Burton play Hamlet. Of course. You're happy to see actors. And I think that there was a real sense that Warhol was on stage you know, when he was in public as, I mean, in a way, he was more honest about recognizing that. Those of us who do things like go on podcasts, pretend that we're just having a normal conversation with a dear friend, but we all are on stage when we're in public. And he was more honest about that than most people, or maybe honest is the wrong no, word. No, I don't think it is the right he word. More, well, I mean, he, he was honest about, about acting, and, and you know what? Most people knew he was too ridiculous not to be putting on an act. Right. If, you know, he, he could not have been as goofy as he pretended to be. And everyone, I think, knew that he wasn't as goofy as he pretended to be, but they didn't know what he really was. Right. And I argue that that was quite deliberate on his on his part. Yeah. Because he was attacking something that it was fashionable to attack at the time, which was the intentional fallacy. Right. Yeah. Certainly anyone from the world of literature knows about that, that, that the so-called new criticism mm -hmm. came of age just when Warhol did and said, don't pay attention to the biography of the creator. Don't pay attention to the intentions of the creator. Look at the work of art. Yeah. And I think that that's what Warhol was doing. And by virtue of being too goofy to be taken seriously, he was forcing people to look at the work and not at him. I think that was part of his deliberate intention. Well, what he was doing by, by being dumb was basically creating a void and allowing all sorts of smart critics to come up and and put their thoughts into his art. Which is what all art is always about. The void is always there. The art is always...
always created by the people looking at it and deciding what it means. And it's almost always a mistake to ask the, the artist what, what their work means. It almost always leads you astray. They're not necessarily the best critics. It's a different job. Some artists are great critics, but that's a kind of accident that they have two, they can wear two hats. It's like a great basketball player also being a great chess player or something. Um, the two don't necessarily go together. And I think Warhol was keen to make that clear. And he was, again, he wasn't alone. This was, this is what the smartest people were all saying and thinking at the time. And let's not forget that it was the 1960s. Radical behaviors of all kinds, playing games of all kinds. I mean, when someone put a big peace sign around their neck and, and put on hippie clothing, that was as performative as anything could be. And people were hippies for, what, two years, three years before moving on to the next thing they would be. So it was a moment, I think, of performance, of tomfoolery, of crazy, wacky stuff, you know, painted buses being driven across the country with full of people taking acid. That's yeah. the context that we're always working in. Well, I think one of the interesting things is is the question of was he a genius or not? And uh, you say, in fact, you don't really come clean until page 279 <laughs> when you say Warhol's first pop solo in New York didn't just bring him attention right then. It's 17 works already acted, still act, as a summary of the West's finest artistic achievements. It established Warhol about a year into his fine art career as a true rival of all the greats who had come before. That's a pretty wonderful <laughs> accolade there. Yeah, it's funny, just a couple of days ago, a famous critic accused me of not being kind enough to Warhol, and I was wondering quite where he came from. Right. You, you know, it, the funny thing is a lot of people have picked up on, on that statement, and especially the last line of the whole book, which I have to admit was probably written at 4 a.m., you know, in utter exhaustion, yeah. where I compare him to Picasso and Rembrandt, etc., Michelangelo. It's funny, I didn't expect anyone to have any problem with those claims because in the world I move in a lot of the time that is the world of academic art history and and serious criticism it's taken pretty much for granted I mean he's really an old master now mm. you can write people have written I don't know dozens or hundreds of PhDs on him if you went to your PhD advisor and as a grad student and said I want to write on Warhol they wouldn't say no he's too unproven they'd say no it's too obvious you know choose an artist that's a little more off the beaten track so there's a funny split uh, between, I think, the public's worry about Warhol still and his utter acceptance in academia and in, in our criticism as someone worth, you know, the deepest of thought. And that's, I think, all to his credit. The, the fact that he's still in doubt, that there's tension around him, I think shows you how interesting he is. That's not true of Picasso, that we should still be super nervous about Picasso. We should wonder about the radical stuff Picasso was doing, but... He's been absorbed into the, um, I don't know what you'd call it, the gallery aesthetic co complex or something like that. Yeah. Whereas Picasso, uh, Warhol's been a little more resistant to that. There's still, I mean, I was quite surprised at how many critics, especially British critics, yeah. uh, when they read in my book, were put off by, were worried by this notion that someone as strange and wacky as Warhol could also be genuinely great. Um, and I do think his persona confuses the matter because the works really do repay close-looking and especially close-thinking. One of the most famous philosophers of the 20th century, certainly philosophers of art of the 20th century, built his entire career 
around the philosophical implications of Warhol's art. Well, which ain't bad for any artist. No, no. But as their uh, reward. Well, I guess it's partly for me anyway, because that's exactly what I kind of grappled with: is is he just a kind of a really smart-ass jerk, or is he a a brilliant genius? And and of course, I'm a I've always been a big fan of of Robert Hughes, so so that I think maybe Hughes's influence in this matters maybe more significant than you think. Well, I'd like to think that if Bob were still alive today, I might, you know, reading this book, might have convinced him of it, that he yeah. was wrong. And, you know, it's convinced a bunch of people who've told me at least that they thought Warhol wasn't worth the time and then spent a thousand pages reading about him. And, and I think I did convince them, including, you know, uh, people I know in publishing. You know, I mean, all I can say is that a lot of extremely smart people who spend all of their life thinking the hardest questions about art really find them hugely rewarding and yeah. you just don't i mean what better accolade could there be than that these are people who you know are as tough as could be hal foster or tom crow very hard-nosed art historians who find warhol rewarding and that's all any artist can be is rewarding yeah it's funny I, I, it's a couple of people a couple of movie stars that i saw going on talk shows one was johnny depp and he pulled this this kind of dumb act my reaction was what an what an asshole, and it affected yeah. it affected how I viewed his art. And then I don't know if you recall uh, Joaquin Phoenix a few years ago on David Letterman. It was a bizarre appearance. I already knew that Phoenix was pretty smart, so it didn't affect uh, the way I looked at his art quite as significantly, but it was still a really wincing kind of a, an event. And this is what Warhol did all the time, I guess. Yeah, but they were weirder than that. I mean, the thing about Warhol is he didn't just come off as, a, as an asshole. Okay. They were such strange performances. I mean, a lot of the time he just wouldn't say a word. Right? He'd come on with yeah. someone else and they yeah. would do all the talking for him. And you mentioned one time when someone else showed up in his place. Not one time. I mean, it was an entire lecture tour that Warhol yeah. sent someone else on. Now, I've sometimes built that as a performance piece, but there was definitely an element of uh, stage fright. Warhol didn't want to go on stage. Yeah. Uh, also being fed up with doing the lecture circuit. I mean, the other problem is the questions that he was asked, that any artist is asked, that any movie star is asked, can be so repetitive and so stupid that it does make them kind of want to take revenge on their questioner. Yeah. And that can be part of the phenomenon. Now, put it this way, it was not polite of Warhol to twit his questioners in the way he did, but he wasn't particularly interested in being polite. No. I do think that he wished that people would just look at the goddamn art. Yeah, but... He wanted a wacky artist, among other things, right? Yeah, but... Everyone bl- imagines artists should be crazy bohemians, and he gave them exactly what they wanted. But, Blake, the... Art was so banal. You know, it certainly wasn't greeted as being banal um, when it when it arrived. It was greeted as being incredibly threatening. Uh, the early reactions to the Campbell soup cans mostly saw it as a vicious left wing attack on American consumerism. In fact, the first text that Warhol ever published on his art under his own name still had a kind of left wing Marxist. You're cutting out, Blake. Oh, no. Not sure what's going on here. Yeah, I don't know how much of that you lost. I mean, I could see my little uh, 
lying there. Yeah. The recording just fine. I think you got the recording of me talking. Mm. That little span. I don't know if you can check that easily. Yeah, um, I guess I guess we'll see. Uh, anyway, let's just. Uh, I, I I can hear you now, just fine. So. What were you? Uh, I was doing all the talking there. For a while, <laughs> so I think you got a good chunk of what what you need. Okay. Just talking about banality and talking about Vermeer. How Vermeer subjects are as banal as oh, as a yes. subject. Yes, that's lovely. Just, yeah. At oh. the time, certainly, people would have seen Vermeer subjects as utterly banal. They're nostalgic for us, or they're even exotic for us. Yeah. We don't know day-to-day life in 17th century Holland, but for the original observers of Vermeer's paintings, they would have been as banal as any cattle soup cat. What yes. that means to a viewer that, that starts to matter at a certain point. Well, I think they would have seen it as, as incredible because it was so photographic, and the, the photographs weren't around back then. And it looks almost certain that, that Vermeer actually used a camera, a camera obscura, yeah. to make his paintings. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah, that would have certainly been so there was craft involved. You know, there's way more craft in Warhol yes. than people people realize. Y- I mean, the Camel Soup cans are extremely yeah. carefully hand-painted objects. Yes. People often, I mean, to this day, I would say every day I read an article about Andy Warhol, including reviews of my book, that say, that refer to the silk-screened Campbell Soup yeah. painting. And they weren't silk screen. They were very, very elaborately and carefully crafted. Yeah, you talk and about the the way he captures the rust. Yes, those are that's on the bigger soup cans that he made very yeah. early on, where yeah. he captured the look of the inside of a of a, a soup can yeah. uh, with incredible accuracy, a kind of almost trompe l'oeil accuracy. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, and you know, people talk about the mass production of his silk screens. Yeah. A, that's not true at all. They were utterly artisanal, as artisanal as any kind of painting could be. He, most, he had one or two assistants. I'm talking here about the actual pop art canvases, yeah. which were silkscreen, but but with care and attention and very much in a kind of homemade mode. Um, so there was never a factory. The, the studio, which was known as the capital F factory, was named because it had once been a factory, not because they were turning anything out no, to a factory. No. Um, the other thing is you look at his silk screens, right? And they're, in fact, not carefully reproductive. They don't no. look like photographs. He likes the drips and the, the differentiation, right? Exactly. And if you look at, like, some of his repeated images of Marilyn, where Marilyn sort of fades off to nothingness, that technique stands pretty well for what happens with reproduction, you know, how something that originally has salience uh, loses all of its presence in the culture. Yeah. Well, certainly his silkscreen technique did a lovely and complex job of capturing that and other similar things. I mean, it repays all sorts of looking and all sorts of talk. Mm-hmm. The fact that people have been able to find so many different cogent and interesting readings of them, I think, argues against their banality as works of art. Sure, okay. If they were truly banal, they'd be like, I don't know, some sunset you buy in a, in a gallery in a mall. That's real banality in art. Or a reproduction, the millionth reproduction of the Mona Lisa, that's banal. Well, Warhol did, by definition, can't be banal because people have been too interested in it. Yeah, over time, yeah. But it's interesting how, like, one of my major criticisms of Warhol was that he didn't do much more than Duchamp did, you know, 40 years earlier. Duchamp did all the thinking. He did all the brilliant stuff. Warhol was just copying that. Yeah, other people have said that too. I don't think that's true. I mean, it is absolutely true that... Uh, Warhol 
follows from Duchamp the way Michelangelo follows from Masaccio. Okay. Right? That's an inevitable feature of working in a language, that you speak the same language as the people who came before you, yeah. as your important predecessors. But remember... Uh, you're cutting out again. There's a urinal. Oh. Sorry, what? Let me just start from a minute ago. With Duchamp, the content didn't matter very much, right? He could have chosen something other than a urinal. He could have chosen a sink. He could have yeah. chosen, well, as he did, a bicycle wheel. It wasn't about the content of the things that he chose to appropriate and bring into pop art. Well, it was Before quite art, outrageous, though. It's always though. about it... the things he represents. Okay. It's about Marilyn or Campbell's soup. Sure. Right? That's a huge difference. It's not appropriation for its own sake. It's appropriation to achieve an aim, even though it is importantly appropriation as well. The appropriation itself has real content. Right. Okay. Um, I use the term ostension, which is a little theft I made from the world of philosophy, okay. which refers to the important role that all art has always had, all representational art, in just pointing at stuff in the world. We've lost track of that. It's one of the things that art did more importantly than anything else in its repertoire in the Renaissance, for instance, was to say, look at that. One of the things Warhol does is say, hey, look at that. You haven't been paying attention. Yeah. Now pay attention to that. Well, you talk about observation being so important to him. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Looking at the world, looking at the people in his studio, looking at the Empire State Building for eight hours. I mean, I sat through oh, all God. eight hours of his movie called Empire, and yeah. you know what? I enjoyed every minute of it. Oh. It was hugely productive. I had the good luck to be taking notes the whole time. Okay. And when you're taking notes, it focuses your mind on what you're looking at, what you're thinking about. And it was, you know, the only word I can use is productive. I've Why? Little, uh, Why was it productive? Because it got me thinking about the nature of art, the nature of film, the nature of, of perception, the nature of uh, proprioception, uh, cognition, uh, the range of possible things that film can do, what's static, what isn't static. I mean, the list can go on and on. Yeah. Somewhere on my blog, I've published, I think it must be six, maybe 10,000 words that I wrote as I watched as I watched Empire. And I don't think too many of them are incredibly stupid. It, it really generated ideas. I mean, I have this little aphorism I like to trot out, which is that a great work of art should be a machine for thinking yeah. as much as it's a machine for feeling, that it produces yeah. radical and interesting ideas. And that, especially modern art, that's one of the things that art does well. And it's one of the things that Warhol's art does incredibly well, really in the most exciting way. So what about sleep? Just looking at someone sleeping for eight hours, is that, is that, you think that would stimulate all sorts of different thoughts or exactly the same kind of thoughts? You know, it's funny you say just looking at someone sleeping. Well, you can say, the, you can use the just word for any work of art, right? Right. What's Las Meninas? It's just a bunch of stupid royals hanging around their court. Right. right? Art is always kind of ridiculous. It's always just something. Sure. What's Johann Sebastian Bach? It's just a bunch of stupid sounds, right? Right. right. There's always the just. Well, the just of sleep, you know, it can be paraphrased to something silly, but in fact, when you look at it, it's obviously hugely about. Uh, gay lust and gay affection. It's a very romantic piece. I mean, think of someone you love enough that you're willing to spend five and a half hours just watching them. Yeah. That's actually an old trope of literature, the idea of watching your lover asleep. Well, Warhol takes it more seriously than most people do, right? Yeah. When people talk about, poets talk about the joy of watching your lover sleep. Well, he said, okay, I'm going to watch my lover sleep. That's how much I love him. That's just one aspect. Yeah. of unpacking sleep that really pays off.
Well, speaking of just, here's a Duchamp called pop art, just a second wind of Dada. And he was wrong. He also praised Warhol to the skies for his Campbell soups. You know, there was a moment where pop did seem Dada, and that's important for us to recognize because Dada was very, very serious art. And it was very serious art that had a very limited lifespan. Remember, it only really existed very briefly after the First World War. Yeah. So to say, giving it a second wind ain't the worst thing ever. But it really was different. I mean, Marcel Duchamp bought into the notion that pop was neo-dada, was just an empty gesture, uh, just an empty summing of the nose at the establishment. Mm. But there's actually way more going on than that. And in fact, the problem is that the great pop artists like Roy Lichtenstein, like Claes Oldenburg, pretty clearly became just two more great artists in the grand tradition, maker of lovely objects. They weren't breaking any rules in terms of the sort of parameters of what it was to be an artist. Yeah. They were pretty traditional new masters, if you like. Whereas Warhol was doing, and Duchamp were doing something much more radical than that. Yeah. So to recapture the, the naughtiness of Dada in a profound way was a major achievement of early pop art especially, and of Warhol more than anyone else. Okay, you've hijacked me away from Caro here. Feel free to go back to Caro. We're very different because he's interested fundamentally, I think, in history, and I'm fundamentally interested in art. Yeah. I'm interested in history insofar as it tells us something about art, and I believe it always tells us vast amounts that we want to know about art. I don't think you can, you can understand a work of art without understanding its history. No, no. Um, but you're both interested in... interested in history for its own sake. So but obviously you're both interested in biography. So here he says that the reason his books are so long, and this is uh, this has come up with your book, of course, because it's it's 900 pages, is that he hates having to write it while there are still questions he wanted to ask or documents he wanted to look at. What about you? Does that ring true for you? Uh, only in the sense that, well, partly because of the kind of scale of, I was going to say because of the scale of Warhol's archive, but of course, LBJ doesn't have the smallest archive in the no. world. I realized that there was, an, you know, a, a deadline, and certainly my editors at Echo let me know that there was a deadline. I only blew through my deadline, I think, twice. Okay. For a biographer, is pretty good. Yeah. And a thousand pages is, pretty, is much shorter than most of Caro's books. Yeah. So I did know there were limits to what I could do and limits to the number of people I could interview. If I could have had another three years, I would have been happier. But at a certain point, the intellectual return on the extra investment of time starts to pay off. At a certain point, yes, you're making maybe fewer factual errors. Yeah. But I think after seven years, you probably learned most of what you need to know. And you're, you probably wouldn't get any huge new insights after another three. Okay. And there'll be other biographers around who will correct my biography. And, in fact, I'm very proud of the fact that I have a page of my Warhol website, just called Warholiana.com, that's dedicated to corrections and additions to the book. Okay. So as people complain and send in nasty notes about what needs to be corrected, I'm hoping to, to post them there. Very good. Caro talks about the sense of place being very important to him. And one of the things that struck me about your book was how influential New York is and all of the 
fascinating people and the art that's being created there. I just wonder, I wonder if there was any technique that you used to kind of get a real sense of the place or is it just living there or, or what? Well, I really enjoyed not only studying uh, New York as a place, but getting much more granular than that. So one of the things I really liked doing was figuring out the layout of each of Orwell's houses and what their neighborhoods meant. That kind of really close context for Warhol's, Warhol's geography mattered a great deal to me. And I hope that readers find that a kind of a skeleton for the whole book, because I start a lot of chapters with the place that Warhol has just moved to, yeah. for instance, whether it's a studio or where he's living. And I think that's really important for understanding someone. And then, you know, different scenes within a place. So the fact that the, New York in the 1950s had an uptown gay scene and a downtown Greenwich Village gay scene is very important to me for understanding how Warhol went from one to the other and bounced between them. Yeah. I think that human beings often think about the world in terms of place, in terms of where they live and where they do their work. And to understand what humans do, you really do need to understand the places that they frequent. That's that was my feeling, anyways, and it's incredibly fun to try to recreate, you know, the floor plan of his studio. I mean, luckily, I'm married to an artist, so she was actually able to take all the photographs we had and make me a, a sort of three dimensional drawing of Warhol's studio. And it just really helps you understand what his life was like to understand where it was lived. That's my maybe readers will disagree, but that's my feeling about it. Well, it's interesting when he moved into his place in in uh, New York, uh, and his mother's down in the basement. Yeah, and they don't like to say basement. The family gets annoyed if someone says she lived in the basement. Okay. They think it makes makes Andy sound mean. It was it was the the lower ground level or something. Well, it's probably pretty lovely, right? It wasn't. It wasn't lovely by any means. It had brick walls, and but it wasn't lovely. But it had light. It wasn't. It wasn't a dungeon. You know, one of the sites, the Warhol sites that I'm particularly fond of is the sort of first serious apartment he had when he started make, making it, you know, doing well, was above a uh, sort of dive um, called the, the, the Pinup Bar. And I just love the fact that, that this art man who goes on to be one of our great artists was above this sort of cheesy bar that actually had pinups all over the walls, <laughs> but funnily enough was also a place where the elite went to, to slump. So it's a very interesting kind of uh, hinge between between lowbrow and highbrow is literally in the basement of the building that he ends up living in. Well, in fact, the, there's a couple of restaurants, uh, the Serendipity and Nicholson, that you you talk a lot about. Uh, there's a sort of uh, atmosphere that's there, the campy kind of, well, and very homosexual crowds there, right? Yeah, serendipity would still exist. Oh, great. Is, it's, Didn't know it, that. It's so happy that now it's become the favorite hangout for 12-year-old girls to have birthday parties. <laughs> and for the same reasons, because camp is now sort of uh, the territory of American doll. So the girl, little girls love the over-decorated space full of Tiffany lamps. Well, when Warhol first discovered this bar shortly after it opened, I shouldn't say bar, it was a cafe. Yeah. Um, it was actually an important... Uh, for want of a better word, locus for a modern aesthetic. The intersection between high modernism and camp was happening in the 50s in really interesting ways. So Tiffany lamps were being discovered as a kind of precursor to modern design at just that moment. So in Serendipity has Tiffany lamps, which would now be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, 
when they're, they have $5 Tiffany lamps they basically found in the trash hanging from the ceiling, that was an avant-garde gesture at that moment in the 1950s. Tiffany mm. lamps hadn't become the territory of TGIF yet. So there's mm. a very interesting stuff that goes on even in the decor mm. of these places where we're all hung out. Yeah. Well, and his art was used to decorate the place too, right? Well, his illustrations, yeah. I mean, yeah. long before he becomes an important artist. One of the things I say that I think pisses people off is that if Warhol had never made his pop art, he would have disappeared completely from view. You know, his his commercial art is charming and skilled, and, you know, there are lots of positives you can attach to it. But what we forget is that there were lots of other really talented illustrators working at the same time. Yeah. And because they didn't go on to become unbelievably famous and talented fine artists, we've forgotten their names altogether. But he was part of a large community of very skilled journeyman illustrators and that's really what he was and we would have completely forgotten him mm. um, if it weren't for his high art i played a mean trick on a famous uh warholian called matt werbican who unfortunately has passed on now a great warhol archivist where i showed him three warhol illustrations to ask him what he thought of them and he you know rambled on a little bit about them he didn't realize that they weren't by warhol they were by other people who had styles that were virtually indistinguishable from warhol because Warhol was inhabiting a period style. He wasn't really moving that style on. Right. He was very good at these blotted lines and, and, and shoes, right? Yeah. I mean, he invented this blotted line, which was his own signature. It's a kind of herky-jerky line for his illustrations. But it was mostly a way of capturing a kind of line that Ben Sean had already perfected. Ben Sean did it, I think, by sort of jiggling his hand as he drew. And we're all found this more mechanical way of generating the same effect. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't really his invention as far as an aesthetic goes. And then he used it for shoes, and that's important. Because the one thing Warhol did that was special was that he used his own version of, of a gay cultural aesthetic and used that for commercial art. He used it to appeal to women, in fact. Mm -hmm. He used a kind of camp girlish aesthetic to appeal directly to women, and that worked incredibly well in the marketplace. So that really was his own discovery, if you like. And he did make serious art in the 1950s. People forget that. They think he became an artist in 1961 or 62. He had lots and lots of solo shows in the 1950s. It's just that they were so out in their gay aesthetic that people slammed them or ignored them. They only appealed to a very, very small gay clientele. It was only, of course, in the 90s that identity art, that art that was explicitly about the gay experience, becomes something that can join the mainstream. Well, at one point, you say something like his uh, connecting the, the gay, kind of the cutting-edge gay lifestyle and cutting-edge art is something that is really important for him throughout the course of his life. I think that's right. I mean, it happens again and again, right? When a guy does a five and a half hour movie of his boyfriend sleeping naked, yeah. and you know it's a guy artist doing it, you know it isn't a woman. Yeah. That's already, you know, a perfect collapsing of a kind of avant-garde assertion of gay identity and the most interesting filmic art you can make at that moment. And that happens again and again when he makes his piss paintings in the 1970s, if you'll excuse the expression. Mm. That's what they were. They were automatically evoking sort of an extreme gay culture where gay men 
urinated on each other. The, <laughs> peeing was part of a radical gay culture. So that yeah. connection was in the mind of, of viewers at that time. So there are always these links, or often these links. He, when he paints Mao, he quite often puts lipstick on Mao. So gender bending is something yeah. that mattered throughout his entire life. I mean, one of the things I discovered is that when Warhol was a college student, all his classmates and he were all asked to do a self-portrait for school. And he presented an image of what seemed to be a girl in ringlets. And a classmate said, you know, Andy, what's that? Is that a picture of your sister? And he says, no, I've always wanted to know what I would look like as a girl. So already he's playing with gender when he's still just a college student. And that carries through through his entire life. What's also interesting is the importance of window dressing. I had no idea. You talk, you talk about Rauschenberg and Johns. They were window dressers, and so was Warhol, and this was this was pretty important. Yeah, I mean, I could write a thousand pages just on the fascinating intersection between window dressing and high art, because I think more than any other area of so-called commercial art, there were real overlaps. I mean, it's not just that Warhol and Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns all did window dressing. It's that they also showed some of their most important art, or at least Jasper Johns and Rauschenberg did, in the windows of a department store. Yeah. In two years in a row, Warhol tried to do the same thing, but at that point he wasn't making any important art. So there's a moment I discovered that Warhol has some sort of pretty enough but not very interesting drawings in a window at at Bond Vitello department store. And at that same moment, Rauschenberg has one of his very first important combine paintings, these sort of assemblages on canvas. And Jasper Johns, one window over, has one of his first famous flag paintings. I mean, really considered some of the most important paintings uh, of the second half of the 20th century are there in the windows at Bond Vitello. Yeah. It's amazing. And I have to imagine that we're all thought, oh my, I've really got to come up to speed here. I am not doing work the way these other guys are. Yeah. It's just a, it's just a surprising that this is where this great art originated. Yeah, I don't know if originated is quite the right word with Rauschenberg and Johns because when they were doing when they were literally excuse me literally decorating windows. Yeah. That is with merchandise. They it, didn't really include a lot of their art. No. Warhol did though. In 1961, his first pop paintings are shown very first ones. The first time they're ever shown anywhere. They're shown in the department store window. Yeah. And I think they were functioning at that point as props, and they were barely works of art at all. They were paintings being used as props rather than paintings being shown in a store window as works of important art. So that that collapsing of categories that's so important for Warhol's entire life as an artist happens in those department store windows where you don't know, and I don't think Warhol knew, if these pop art paintings in the window were works of art or if they were props in a window. And the confusion is part of what makes them important and great. It's funny, when you mention props, uh, I think of the fact that uh, he called a lot of the stuff that he collected and bought props so he could write it off on the uh, income tax. Yeah, uh, you know, I don't think Warhol was nearly the devil people pretend, but he was a a very small D-devil. He did not like to pay taxes. I guess a lot of us don't like to pay taxes. Yeah. So what, what he considered a business expense, I think, was pushing the limit of what might be an acceptable business expense. And the IRS 
assassin in the United States was always on his tail, but for whatever reason, they never went after him too viciously. Mm -hmm. If they really wanted to make his life a misery, they could have done, because it was pretty ridiculous, the things that he claimed were props for his, excuse me, for his movies or his art. You know, he was a manic collector. He was really a hoarder, and he just bought just insane numbers of really interesting things like Navajo textiles, important works, but also cookie jars and uh, you name it, he bought it. Uh, he was a real hoarder. You know, he loved rummage sales and, and junky um, antique stores. Which endears him to me. But as I say, this sort of impression that I had of him of being a bit of a smart-ass jerk doesn't really jive with the fact that he seems to have had so many friends. Not just, you know, friend-friend, but he also had a whole string of beautiful young 20-year-old men that he uh, had sex with and they were his assistants, I guess, right? Anyone in Andy's orbit became uh, an assistant because he needed a spare pair of hands. But was he, like, were these friends genuine friends or were they just sort of taking advantage of his celebrity or what? I think, you know, with most people, especially famous people, there's everything. There's the entire gamut of possible friendships is there. Mm. There were real friends, uh, people who were genuinely close to him, people like the radical filmmaker, left-wing documentarian, Emil D'Antonio, yeah. Henry Geldzahler, the Metropolitan Museum curator. There were real friends that were all confided in. There were also a lot of hangers-on who people bill as friends of his, but I think were just barely that. I mean, even Edie Sedgwick, most gorgeous of all the so-called Warhol superstars, she was around a lot, but only really for less than a year. And mostly they were connected in the gossip columns. Mm -hmm. I don't think they confided in each other. I don't think they were best friends in any real sense. They were two figures on the celebrity circuit who I think enjoyed the added celebrity of being with each other. Yeah. But I don't think they were real friends in a deep sense. Okay. And you know, it's funny. There are a few people who say that Warhol was was a demon uh you know some of these these so-called superstars that the acolytes who hung around in his studio but there are an awful lot of people i've interviewed who actually said no he was a really sweet generous person that if he you needed something he'd usually give it to you especially younger people he was a real mentor to a lot of them i mean i heard that again and again and again i would say that for every person who said that warhol was a demon and that's the kind of the popular view that's come yeah. down in history. Yeah. I would say that for everyone who said he was a demon, there were 10 people who just were tremendously fond of him as a, as a human being. You, uh, you talk about the, you know, the fact that you talk, you talked to a lot of people getting back to Robert Carl. He tells the story of how he and his wife actually moved to Texas and lived there for three years as part of, uh, as research for one of the, one of the biographies. And, uh, his wife taught herself how to make fig preserves. She used to bring them over to the people that they wanted to question. And because of those preserves, they suddenly became friends and showed them, quote, things I will never forget. Revelations, basically. I just wanted to know what your fig preserves were. You know, I didn't need fig preserves that much because the world I move in is the same world that a lot of these people moved in or are moving in, right? I mean, as an art critic, I naturally am part of a world of creative people, of artists, of people who value the aesthetic, who value creativity, innovation. So I didn't really have to have 
to learn to socialize with a different set or anything like that. There were no sort of biography tricks I had to pull. Most I could just sit down with someone and talk with them about a world that, in a sense, I already knew. Yeah. You know, but people were very generous. I mean, there were worlds that I learned about. There was this wonderful moment very early in writing the biography where I decided I wanted to go to Warhol's church. The church is, you know, he went to as a child. Yeah. So I went down there and went with my wife and started taking notes quietly. It was actually, I think, Easter service um, in, the, in the Byzantine Catholic tradition. And a young woman comes over, and a very brash, brave young woman called Maria Silvestri comes over and says, what are you doing? I see you taking notes. Are you a reporter? And I explained who I was. And it turns out that she's an activist for Warhol's ethnic group. Oh, yeah. Rusins, and she opened doors for me and explained to me this really quite unusual culture that he belonged to and introduced me to other members of that culture um, and to specialists and experts on that culture. So that was really fascinating, entering that world that I didn't know anything about, unlike the art world where I'm at home. Yeah. This was something really different. And uh, people were incredibly generous, mostly because Andy Warhol is by far the most famous Carpatho Rusin ever. So they were happy to talk about this, the most famous member of their ethnic group. Um, but they're just a very, as far as I can tell, a very generous ethnicity in general, mm-hmm. voluble and friendly and interested in culture. Even they're, they're very cultured people. All the all the Carpathian Russians I've met are unusually cultured. Hmm. Yeah, I enjoyed the uh, the Pittsburgh years uh, in the book. You mentioned your wife, and uh, Caro's wife is very important to him. Uh, to his work. I just wonder how she, if she's an artist, she must have gotten into this project. Or did she? Yeah, she, I give her, I give her a full, uh, you know, a dedication on the dedication page. <laughs> but then if you turn to the acknowledgement page, she's also acknowledged as my chief research assistant and also, most importantly, the photo editor of this book. She was once a painter, but she's been a photographer for quite a long time. And she did the photo editing of the book. And one of the things I'm most proud of is every chapter begins with a full page image of Andy Warhol, and you get to watch him grow older along with a chronology of the book as the chapters advance. And she found those images, and a lot of them have never before been seen or quite rare, so that was a, a crucial element. I didn't uh, get that, Blake. I didn't get that because I've got the advanced reader's copy. Oh, no. Bummer. I don't believe that. You know, we can certainly get you a, a PDF if you want to take a sure. look at that. Yeah, I wouldn't mind having a look at it. We can get yeah. you a book, too. Just yeah. say the word, and... Uh, and uh, Rebecca Silver can get you a, a book. Okay. Hopefully overnight. Very good. Uh, so, did anyone get in your way and try and sort of block you from doing anything, saying anything, or? No, there were people who quietly dug in their heels. Yeah, but there was no way for anyone to block me. Uh, this, the I wasn't aiming to write an authorized biography. The people who could have authorized it probably would have anyway. So. The Andy Warhol Foundation was perfectly gracious with me, though I didn't need much from them. Yeah. They let me buy the rights to some of the images, though they were helpful at various points. And then the Andy Warhol Museum and I really had a kind of close collaboration in researching the book. So they gave me unbelievable access to the Warhol archives, which were immense. Um, and the archivists there were just a dream to work with. Mm. So uh, so that was just, just glorious. There was one person who literally physically slammed a door in my face, I've never quite figured out why it was a star in one of Warhol's very minor movies. I guess a 
fairly pornographic movie. I guess he didn't want people to know about that. I'm not sure. He's, his name is there in all the books about Warhol, so I'm not sure what, how he thought he could hide from it. And then uh, Paul Morrissey, Warhol's collaborator on films, uh, has become a complicated, difficult person who absolutely detests Andy Warhol as much as any human being has ever detested another human being. So the interview with him was not very long. What did you get out of that? Anything? Useful. Otherwise, there was really there were there were very few obstacles. A few people I didn't manage to reach who I would have liked to have reached, but that was mostly for fairly technical reasons. I must say, if I ever offer to interview you, say no, because on several occasions I set up interviews with people and they died a day or two before the oh, interview. Oh goodness! Okay. So I'm definitely deadly when it comes to that. Yeah. Um, that was disappointing, um, but I, I I refuse to take the blame for that. I didn't kill any of them. <laughs> Okay. He, as I say, he had lots of friends. He also had the habit of, of uh, calling them up and talking late at night with them, wanting to get lurid details of their sex life. Yeah, that's one of the stranger, I admit, this is one of the stranger aspects of Warhol, who I'm happy to use the genius, to the word genius to describe. Yeah, yeah. Um, is a strange, I mean, he was a strange, there's no, he liked to cause problems for people. I mean, especially when it came to St. Louis, it was a kind of, I think it was partly a kind of flagrant declaration of his own homosexuality, his interest in penises. Yeah. Um, clearly had something to do with that. Yeah. Um, like he's the yeah, he was, forerunner of the dick pic, pic right? I, I guess that's right. I'm not a specialist on dick pics. <laughs> Me neither. Um, I just know the term, but... But it seems like uh, it seems like that's what he. I don't know if he did that all his life, but he went through a period where he wanted to photograph uh, friends or guys' dicks. Yeah, he drew them before he photographed them in the 1950s. He was drawing them already. Yeah. I don't know if anyone's gone to the trouble of dating the very first dick pic that he ever did, but it would have been pretty early on. Right. I, I do think that. It's hard for us to recognize because, you know, homosexual marriage is possible and, you know, there are gays everywhere and there are programs about gay culture on mainstream TV. I think it's hard for us to realize the excitement, the powerful free saw there was in being an out gay man in the 1950s yeah. and 60s, for that matter, even the 70s. Yeah. So that itself was kind of, kind of avant-garde. Uh, energy to it, and I think that's partly what Warhol is is interested in. His style of drawing may not have been very interesting, uh, creative, innovative, but when you're drawing uh, erect penises with bows tied around them, that does add a certain charge to the image, if you like. Yeah. What, speaking of the museum, uh, we were there a few years ago, and... Uh... I must say, I was I was really uh, uh, impressed with the just the quantity of and the color and the, you know of of uh, of the art that was the building's like four or five stories high, isn't it? Full. I think it's, it's seven stories. Oh, is it? Okay. It's full though. It's full, yeah, isn't it's a small it? Building. Yeah. It once was a store that sold musical instruments or a warehouse for musical instruments. It's a beautiful Beaux Arts building. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's this amazing museum in it now. It's worth a trip to Pittsburgh just for that, although Pittsburgh has lots else you know, that yeah. I loved about it. My trips to Pittsburgh were actually far from being chores. I would train up there nine hours, nine and a half hours each time on the train. Yeah. And I loved the train ride through the mountains, and I loved 
uh, being in Pittsburgh, the food scene is great. It's got a lovely kind of hipster scene. It's yeah. pretty. There's there's nothing not to like about Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's an interesting uh, uh, used secondhand uh, bookstore that I like to go to, Caliban, but it's it's it, it's also connected to the robbery of the I guess it was the Carnegie Library. I don't know if you heard about that, but the yeah, owner of it. I knew both the owner of the bookstore. Who yeah. Is certainly in trouble. I don't know what the current status of the of the criminal case is. No. And then the librarian at the Carnegie was hugely helpful to me because one of the things I was interested in was Warhol's connection to children's literature. And it turns out that I think the first children's library in North America was at the Carnegie Library. And it turns out he spent time there as a kid and he always was deeply interested in children's literature. So I was doing this research, not knowing that one of the people I was talking to was in the process, it seems, is alleged to have stolen yeah. vital things from his own rare book collection. He was in charge of that collection. And certainly the newspaper stories say that he was stealing from it as well. It's a tragic story. It is. Tragic. It really is. Uh, over many years, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of him being a child, his mother was really important in terms of sort of getting him into art. And you mentioned in several places that people thought that she was quite a bit smarter than he was. Yeah, I don't know about people, but at least one person who knew them both who actually knew her first from sort of the neighborhood and then, then met Andy. And this was a smart man who was, I believe, an art director. Yeah. He felt that she was smarter. Of course, her English was halting. And whenever you can't speak a language well, people think you're an idiot. And I think she used that to do the same kind of put on that Andy did in a way. She yeah. portrayed herself as a silly old school, old world babushka. But I think she was incredibly canny under that. And that lots of people say she was. Yeah. Warhol himself once said, my mother's much smarter than me. You should ask her about my art. Right, um, right. I, I believe that she was kind of a homegrown avant-gardist in her own little world of Carpathia-Rusin culture. She wasn't your average Carpathia-Rusin. Even from childhood, the description seemed to portray her as unusually interested in music and art. Yeah. Maybe an unusual figure for her tiny village in the middle of nowhere on the border between Slovakia and Poland and Ukraine. And yet from early on, she seems to have been this kind of aesthetic figure, this aesthetic radical. And you also say that she may have gotten him used to uh, being seen as a bit eccentric and, and not worrying about it. I think that's right. I think that uh, she was a role model in a lot of ways, as an, in a sense, as an artist, but especially as an eccentric. Yeah. And the willingness to be different, but also I think the willingness to be important as an artist probably came from her. She was ferociously ambitious, as so many first-generation immigrants are for yeah. their children. I think she saw that Andy was special and was, would be capable of yeah. great things. Yeah. And she pushed him really hard. He was a, the, the worst workaholic you've ever come across. I mean, really worked far too hard. Uh, um, Lou Reed complained that Warhol was always was always accusing him of not working hard enough, was always saying, you should write more songs. How many songs did you write today? That's yeah. not enough. Warhol did nothing but work. But of course, his work included things that don't look much like work, partying, getting publicity, all sorts of things that aren't the normal work of an artist. Yeah, I, I mean, that's the thing to me that defines him is his, just his extreme ambition. Yeah, yeah, that's central. Not just ambition in a worldly way, but ambition to be yeah. the most exciting, most interesting artist that most famous. ever heard of. Doing things that no one else has done, even yeah. if it's absolutely the wrong thing to do. 
right. I mean, appearing on the love boat, there was nothing more wrong for a serious <laughs> artist to do in the 1980s than appear on the love boat, which of course meant that Andy Warhol had to make an appearance on what must have been one of the worst programs on American primetime TV. Yeah, and I guess the you know the armchair Freudian wants to figure out well why is why is he driven uh, this way? What's missing? You know, what's he trying to? What void is he trying to fill? Well, if, if the armchair Freudian wants to ask that kind of question, he has to ask it of a lot of second generation immigrants. Um, I myself happen to know a couple of university professors <laughs> um, who started you know absolutely dirt poor working class and were driven to to success. And that was true of, I think, huge numbers of people born around the time Warhol was, you know, the late 20s, early 30s, who, two immigrant parents who just were driven to succeed, to move up to the, to at least the upper middle, upper middle class, if not the, into the elite. One of the things that I, I love about uh, Tolstoy is he, he comes up with these wonderful, big, sweeping statements about, about life and love and, uh, and you do this in your biography, uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a few back at you. At its best, Warhol's art always balanced on the edge between satire and reverence. Observation came to be the heart of much of his art. An unserious manner was central to his public persona. Tension between goofy naif and knowing stylist powered most of his early art. A combination of high and low genres were central to what his art was about. And whether beauty mattered in art or whether form could ever trump meaning, this was at the heart of later achievement. So in terms of payoff from this book there's a there's a ton of they're not contentious but what did you want to do with these these wonderful big juicy statements well first of all let me say how incredibly happy i am that you mentioned tolstoy because one of the things that i, that I did when i finished this book is i realized i had just written almost four hundred thousand words yeah. i was going to ask people to read and i thought I better see what it's like to read a book that's that long. Yeah. So I picked up War and Peace, which I never read. I fell in love with just the bits that you're talking about, just these these giant pronouncements, which I think in Tolstoy, the tongue is always a tiny bit in Tolstoy's cheek, and mine yeah. is a tiny bit too. Yeah. Those are polemical statements, and polemical statements have a kind of literary energy. You never completely... Believe them because they're always overstatements, right? They're never measured uh, conclusions based on evidence. They're always meant to inject energy into the writing and also into yeah. the thinking. Yeah. And that's a bad habit. I'll admit to it as a bad habit it's... that you get into if you're a daily journalist, as I've been for 20 years. You've got to make your points quickly and you want to take home message. Um, you know what, I, I'm perfectly willing to believe that my book might have been better without those sweeping statements, but most of them I believe in. You know, when you're dealing with a figure like Warhol, who people do still have doubts about, I do think you have to make your arguments pretty strongly, uh, at least emo with emotional strength, about the fact that he really is great. I think that, I hope that the thousand pages that I write around those brash polemical statements uh, give the evidence to support them, but I want people to also have those as easy take-home messages. I think it helps you 
figure out what the book is about if you've got these kind of anchors, polemical anchors, that you can use to ground the rest of the book in. Well, War and Peace is probably my favorite novel, and that's exactly why I read it. So these were the highlights for me. I was... I suppose maybe I'm looking for the easy way out. With Tolstoy, I want him to tell me uh, how to live my life. Don't take Andy Warhol as your example. <laughs> That's what you're looking for. No, so no. He's not the best model for how to lead your life. No, definitely not. But he's a fascinating character. And uh, thank you for spending so much uh, time and energy and, and using your big brain on him in this way. It's... Uh, it's a, it was a really interesting, valuable experience to read it. Well, you know, one of the things that that, uh, that struck me most when I think back on, on writing this book, what strikes me most is how much pleasure I had. It was fascinating and fun almost every minute. I mean, it was hard, mm. hard, hard work. Yeah. And I did a lot of 16-hour days, seven days a week. Wow. But it was mostly just a whole lot of fun because he's a fascinating character. The world he lived in was fascinating. I mean, you know, I wear sort of several hats, a historian's hat, an art historian's hat, an art critic's hat. Mm. And he's just hugely rewarding for all of three of those professions, you know. He's just an amazing gift to any biographer. I can't imagine that Robert Caro has had as much fun with his figures as I have with Warhol, because Warhol is just tremendously uh, good fun to look into. Well, in fact, I think you make that point that there's always this fun quotient or he maybe he doesn't take himself too seriously or something. Yeah, I mean, I think that's Tolstoy's the same way, right? There's a, I mean, what struck me reading Tolstoy just, you know, last winter after I finished the book, yeah. after I finished writing my book, was how funny it is, how much satire there is in it. And I think Warhol's the same way. There's tons of serious material in Tolstoy. Lots of take-home lessons, but it's often couched in comedy and satire. Well, I think mm-hmm. that's true of Warhol as well. That there's tons of serious material in Warhol's art, um, in the way he makes it and what it means. But it also always makes you smile because there's always something a little goofy and especially a little strange about the work. And there's always the possibility that there's a joke hidden inside, and that's what people risk losing when they when they look at Warhol. I think either when they hate on him or when they love him too much. You've got to realize that, it, that there's levity there, I think. For people who hate him, and I definitely was a hater, I suppose it's you don't like anyone who you think might be trying to make a fool of you. Yeah, I guess that's right. The only thing I'd say is that all art makes a fool of all of us. Good art, that's what it does. I once spent a week looking at Velázquez's Las Meninas, mm-hmm. and it, I came away thinking I might have had some insights into it, but mostly it made me feel more foolish than ever. A great work of art is always way, way smarter than the people looking at it. That's what makes it great. Mm-hmm. So it is true that we're all, we're all makes a fool of all of us, but mostly, I think, in his, in his work. And this is a crazy thing for a biographer to say, but I wish people spent more time looking at his work and less time worrying about his, his virtues or sins as a person. Right. Well, as I say, we've got uh, we've got Pittsburgh and the museum there. It's 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 great that that that's there, so that people once they've read your read your book, they can go and really revel in it in the stuff. Yeah, I, I certainly hope that soon we all get to leave our 
around yes. again and go look yes. at art and do all the other fun things. Luckily, books can be read at home, so yes. that's the one, the one pleasure that 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 hasn't we haven't lost. So this is a good moment, luckily for me, for people to read a thousand-page biography of Andy Warhol. And I regret not uh, having had the opportunity to meet you in person. Indeed. Well, let's hope with my next thousand-page biography, <laughs> we'll meet again in eight. Very good, very good. Well, thanks, uh, thanks so much for uh, for taking the time. Thanks, thank you, Nigel. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Blake Gopnik is one of North America's leading arts writers. He has served as art and design critic at Newsweek and as chief art critic at the Washington Post and Canada's Globe and Mail. He has a PhD in art history from. Oxford University and is a regular contributor to the New York Times. So who's next, Blake? That's one hell of a question. I don't know that there's anyone on the entire planet as interesting as Andy Warhol, but I'm going to try to find someone almost as interesting as Andy Warhol. Well, we'll look forward to that. Thank you. Thank you, Nigel. Take okay. Care.